got another Bible reading for you. This is the one we're actually going to uh, follow. You could call it the coat hanger passage, because we're going to hang everything on it. (laughs) It's Galatians chapter 5, and it's verses 1 to 16, and it's up there. Freedom, says Paul, is what we have. Christ Jesus has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, it means that Christ is of no use to you at all. And once more, I warn any man who allows himself to be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. Those of you who try to be put right with God by obeying the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You are outside of God's grace. And as for us, our hope is that God will put us right with him. And this is what we wait for by the power of God's spirit, working through our faith. For when we are in union with Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor the lack of it makes any difference at all. What matters is faith that works through love. You were doing so well. Who made you stop obeying the truth? How did they persuade you? It was not done by God who calls you. It takes only a little yeast to make the whole batch of dough rise, as they say. But I still feel confident about you. Our life in union with the Lord makes me confident that you will not take a different view and that the man who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will be punished by God. But as for me, my brothers and sisters, if I continue to preach that circumcision is necessary, why am I still being persecuted? If that were true then my preaching about the cross of Christ would be causing no trouble. I wish that the people who are upsetting you would go all the way. Let them go and castrate themselves. He didn't mince words, did Paul, did he? As for you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not let this freedom become an excuse 
for letting your physical desires control you. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment. Love one your neighbour as you love yourself. But if you act like wild animals, hurting and harming each other, then watch out or you will completely destroy one another. What I say is this. Let the Spirit direct your lives. And you will not satisfy the desires of your human nature. For what our human nature wants is contrary to what the Spirit wants. And what the Spirit wants is opposed to what our human nature wants. These two are enemies. And this means that you cannot do what you want to do. If the Spirit leads you, then you are not subject to the law. What human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral, filthy, and indecent actions. In the worship of idols and witchcraft. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous and angry and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups. They are envious and get drunk, have orgies and do other things like these. And I warn you now, as I have before, that those who do these things will not possess the kingdom of God. But the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. There is no law against any of these. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have put to death their human nature with all its passions and desires. The Spirit has given us life. He must also control our lives. We must not be proud or irritate one another or be jealous of one another. Right. I got an email this week telling me on that you have accepted me as a member. I hope your faith is not tainted, tainted along the way. <laughs> but thank you very much anyway. I feel as though I've come out of the cold because it's the first time I've been in Baptist church membership for 20 odd years. And uh, thus is my walk with God. Sometimes against him, but uh, I think that's true of most of us. The Roman province of Galatia was in central Turkey. 
but its people were Celts. Not, I hasten to add, the Celts of Scotland or Ireland, but these were the Celts from Gaul, the country that we now call France. And the Gauls were overrun in the 5th century by the Franks. And of course, the winners always give their name to the country. The original Gauls now live in the western seaboard area of France, in an area that we call Breton. And their blood links with Scotland, Ireland, and indeed Wales, Cornwall, and the Basque country of Spain is well known to us. In about the 2nd century BC, Alexander the Great recruited many Gauls as mercenaries to help him fight his numerous wars, none of which he lost. And he finally ended up in faraway India. And they were rewarded by being given land in the middle of modern Turkey as a home in which they could settle down. And when the Romans came, they discovered these Gauls in the middle of this territory that they called Asia. And perhaps that's why the Romans called the province Gaul-Asia. I'm not sure whether that certainly sounds plausible. After Alexander had died in 323 BC, his empire was divided into four. And one of his cavalry officers, a man called Seleucid, which takes a bit of pronouncing if you're drunk, took over the territory of modern Turkey and Syria. And in time, his power came down to his descendant, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now Antiochus became the ruler in Palestine in the 2nd century BC and quickly became famous for his cruelty. His atrocities led to a great outflowing of Jews across the Greek and later the Roman Empire, the so-called Diaspora. These events are recorded in the books of second, first and second Maccabees in the Apocrypha. It's well worth a read. Some of these Jews settled in Galatia and formed the Jewish community that Paul and Barnabas went to when they first arrived there in 45 or 46 AD. Paul had embarked on his first missionary journey as Barnabas' second man. They had set out from Antioch in Syria, the city named after Antiochus IV, and went first to Cyprus, which was where Barnabas had been born. Having preached their way across the island, they jumped a boat 
to the Asian mainland at Perga and walked north into Galatia. This is all related to in the book of Acts, chapters 13 to 15, which tells of their exploits in the group of towns in Galatia. Paul and Barnabas first came to Antioch of Pisidia, which was named this time after Antiochus I, a soter, which incidentally means saviour. This Antiochus was Antiochus IV's great-great-grandfather. And after Antioch, Paul and Barnabas went on to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, which were straggled along the Lycus Valley. They had suffered serious opposition from the local Jewish communities wherever they went. And on one occasion, Paul was left for dead, having been stoned. On their return trip, they called in on each of their fledgling churches to encourage them before embarking on a boat to Italia to return to Antioch in Syria once more. With all these Antiochs around, it can get a bit confusing. We aren't certain how much later Paul wrote his letter to them, but it is unlikely to be more than about two years. But he did write because he had heard some disturbing reports as to what was going on in the churches in Galatia. And that fact alone would make this letter the oldest document in our New Testament, dating from perhaps the late 40s AD and predating all four of the Gospels. Before chapter 5, Paul has responded to the legalism that was emerging in the Galatian churches. He outlined the nature of the gospel of grace as distinct from the gospel of law, that his protagonists, the Judaizers, had been advocating and has spoken of the nature of living by faith. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he has discussed how the cross of Christ overcame the legalism inherent in Judaism and has discussed the part the law really played in our understanding of the faith. So now, Paul focuses on the core of his concerns, circumcision. Bring up the subject of circumcision in any group of this type, and sooner or later, every man in the room will be quietly cringing at the thoughts of what the consequences might be. Perhaps that is the reason why it is mostly done to eight-day-old children who won't remember the event. However, in Jewish and more recently Muslim societies, circumcision was the essential mark of being part of the community. 
or as we might put it today, the ink crowd. It was circumcision that fundamentally marked the Jew out from the Gentile. If a Jew were to take part in the many games that were popular in ancient Roman society, then as the competitors were expected to participate naked, then a Jew would have to reveal his Jewishness in all its glory. We can safely assume that all of the earliest Christians were circumcised, as they were all Jews. It only became an issue when Paul, Barnabas and others started to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The various Jewish communities were not as closed as we sometimes assume. The Jews are highly regarded in many places for their godliness and piety. And consequently, Gentiles would, from time to time, go through the ritual of renouncing their old life, bathing, funny enough, called baptism, and the circumcision in order to become Jews. However, circumcision was something of a barrier. As the pain, discomfort, humiliation, not to mention the potential health risks from the primitive medicine, combined into a considerable barrier. This meant that there were many who were part of the community, but declined to take that final step of full membership. These were the God-fearers who were mentioned in the New Testament from time to time. But they were always considered second-class Jews. Incidentally, John the Baptist, I don't think that's actually him, incidentally, he scandalized the people he preached to because he was saying that the Jews needed to be baptized because they had become so unholy, despite being born Jews. So circumcision, then, became the preeminent symbol of the faithful, law-keeping Jew. So when the Christians began to multiply after the day of Pentecost, initially, they were perceived as just another new sect of Judaism, like the Pharisees or the Essenes. Paul seems to have been one of the first of the apostles to realize that something bigger was going on here. So when Gentiles began to become Christians in large numbers, there grew up many Jewish evangelists who felt that they were also joining Judaism and consequently impressed upon the Gentiles the need to join properly. That is, to be circumcised, and by implication, to obey all the precepts of the Jewish law. And Paul was having none of this. He insists that if they accept circumcision, then by implication, they were rejecting Christ and all the implications of the cross. 
And they were under obligation to obey the law, all of it. It was all or nothing. And Paul clearly believed that the Gentile Christians had to adopt either a loyalty to the law or a loyalty to living in the power of the Spirit. There was no middle way. No alternative compromise was possible. The word was made flesh and dwelled among us, as John's Gospel puts it. But we seem determined to turn the word back into words. Freedom. Freedom is a very odd concept for us to wrestle with. We live in a free country, but there are clearly constraints and limits upon our actions, brought about entirely by the need to share these islands of ours with 60 million other people. And what's more, the mechanism we use to ensure that the freedom is evenly shared out is the rule of law. Equally, that freedom is constantly under threat. We have concerns when the government tries to tax us more than we like. We have concerns that the law can be bypassed with those with money or prestige. And we have concerns about those in power abusing the privileges of their position such as in the recent MPs' expenses scandal. This freedom is preserved by a series of checks and balances that maintain an uneasy balance between the selection of essentially independent bodies that are both independent from each other, but also held to account by us, the public at large. In recent years, we have learned that the greatest threat to our freedom is a dictatorship. And we need to be constantly on our guard about such a dictatorship ever forming. Especially since this man, Adolf Hitler, showed how easy it was for freedom to be lost. Paul and the Galatians had no such understanding they were surrounded by dictators, most of whom believed that that was the normal state of things. Paul had been brought up in a country under oppression from a distant tyrant, Caesar, and there was an ongoing history of rebellions and savage reprisals. Slavery was an openly acknowledged fact that few, if anybody, even thought to question. And it has been estimated that almost half of the 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. So in this context, freedom was a highly prized benefit and the Jewish law code seemed to be more of a straitjacket than a way of life. Paul says 
that Jesus had died and won our freedom. He set us free from all the powers of politics, society, and even religion. He said we only have two constraints on our actions. One was the need to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the other was to identify and submit to the Spirit of God within us. He would lead us into all righteousness. And when writing to the Corinthian church, who also had issues to do with law and liberty, Paul had written, where the Spirit of Yahweh is, there is freedom. Furthermore, he adds, that freedom is not a license to do just what you like. True freedom comes, paradoxically, when we surrender our freedom to obedience to God's Spirit. This can be quite difficult for us to grasp sometimes. But once we've grasped it, it's truly liberating. Freedom is not something that you grab hold of or claim. This is the way the power-hungry think. But freedom is something you give to others. As somebody once said, and off the top of my head, I think it just might be Mike Hook, you can give freedom, but you can only take liberties. It does sound like Mike Hook, doesn't it? (laughs) It is often said that we need to have a law code because chaos will ensue if we don't have one. And so Bible verses are extracted from their context and applied as an unassailable authority in order to affirm the authority of this leader or that. Sadly, this doesn't give us the harmony and peace that we desire. All the prevailing evidence indicates that law creates conflict, not harmony. The Jews, with their adherence to the law of Moses, were filled with division. There were the Pharisees, there were Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots, all of whom were at each other's throats, and each one declaring loyalty to the same law code. We see it in our own day, in Islam. The Sunnis, the Shiites and the Baha'is all believe that they are being true to the Quran. Similarly, the Christian churches in Britain have had a growing range of denominations since the Reformation. And new ones are created every 50 years or so. They are groups and sometimes individual churches who mostly believe that they are the right one and all the others must, by implication, be to some extent wrong. In my 50 years as a Christian... I have witnessed firsthand no less than four church splits. And many more arguments, rows, disputes, resignations, walkings out, 
and boycotts. And I've been in the center of one or two of them. But in every case, the people involved believed, or at least said they believed, that they were being true to the Bible. Not true to the Holy Spirit within, but to the Bible. A law code. Paul is clearly well aware of this contentious nature that we are burdened with. So he doesn't call for a loyalty to a written code, but to the Holy Spirit. He says if you focus on the spirit within, then you won't succumb to the human inclinations that we all have. To climb the greasy pole, to get one over on our rivals, and to destroy the reputations of our enemies. Paul then gives us some examples of what kinds of behavior are typical of unloving and unspiritual people. And I'll leave you to work through the list. But if you go through this list, saying, immoral actions, don't do that, tick. Indecent actions, don't do that, tick, etc. Then you're still thinking legalistically. This list is neither a list of sins, nor is it a list of categories. It is a number of examples of what behaviors are typical of people who are not living in the spirit. The list is by no means exhaustive. And there will be overlaps between one and another. So that you won't always be able to put a particular example into one or other neat categories. However, we will from time to time all fall into one or other of these. And if you normally live in the spirit, it will cause you much heartache. However... If this list describes your life, then take note of Paul's warning. Those who do such things do not possess the kingdom of God. Freedom is not the freedom to do as you like. It's the freedom to follow the Spirit, whatever anyone else might say. But even that can be described as heretical in some quarters. Turning to the positive. Paul now talks about the characteristics of living in the spirit. But as we said earlier, if you go through it saying, love. Oh, it hasn't come up yet. Short pause while we have a look. There it is. Yes, if you go through it saying, love. Do that. Tick. Joy, do that, tick, etc. Then you're still thinking legalistically. My version of the passage from the Good News Bible didn't use the word fruit, but those versions that do use it in the singular. And this shows that we aren't looking at a list of qualities, but rather different aspects of the one quality of being spirit filled. 
So when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, a seed is is sown. Wrong teeth in. This seed won't be immediately recognizable as anything in particular, but over time it will become clearer. It will appear as love or joy or peace or some other combination as circumstances arise and you face various difficulties. You may not have noticed this growing in godliness happening to you. And you may well be more aware of the areas in which you have not grown as opposed to those in which you have. And sometimes it can be quite scary. The troubles, the hardships and difficulties and persecutions that you face in your life are the mulch that enables us to grow in Christ. This man, plucked out of the history books again, is Quintus Septimus Florence Turtle Tarnus. It's a bit of a mouthful, so we usually just refer to him as Tertullian. He has lived in Carthage in North Africa in the early part of the 3rd century, and he's reputed to have said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Maggie was a young lady I knew once. She had been a drug addict and had a police record. She was not a nice person. She was described as the toughest thing on two legs in the town in which she lived. And then she came to Christ. And soon she had a magnificent testimony. She immediately began to grow and mature. And about a year after her conversion, there was a shooting in London. You remember it. There had been some protest demonstrations in London against the regime of Colonel Guamar Gaddafi of Libya. And this had taken place outside the Libyan embassy in St. James's Square in London. And during one of these demonstrations on Tuesday the 17th of April 1984, a volley of shots rang out And a policewoman, WCPC Yvonne Fletcher, was shot and killed, and 11 others were injured. The television news pictures at the time were quite harrowing. A few days later, Maggie called on me, utterly distraught. She had sat in front of her television and wept for Yvonne. And this had caused Maggie some consternation. As she'd only ever hated the police before. She had threatened them, sworn at them many times. She'd always been at war with the police. Because they had been charged with eliminating illegal drugs and other associated criminal behaviour. And they had raided Maggie's flat many times, and indeed had continued to do so for some time after God had turned her life round. 
But at that moment, she began to realize that God was changing her. He was sowing seeds of compassion in her heart. And the fruit was growing. Paul continued by talking to the Galatians about putting to death the old self, which can sound like rather a lot of hard work. In reality, he's still talking about living in the spirit and not about self-effort. It's about choosing where you can choose and trusting when, and it will be when, you fail or fall down. Surrendering to God's spirit means not fighting him. Perhaps it's summed up by this picture. God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. The book of James seems to have been a written account of a sermon delivered by the Apostle James. Perhaps the last one he delivered before he was arrested and beheaded. This would at least explain why it was preserved for us. In it, James says that he talk, says this, he talks in chapter 4 about the quarrelsome nature of our human nature. And he sums it up by saying, so then, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Unfortunately, most translators put a full stop after submit to God. And this separates the two statements. And it seems to me that submitting to God is resisting the devil. That is how you resist the devil. That is what putting to death the old self means. Submitting to the spirit is often harder than it seems. Yet without doing so, we cannot consider ourselves as obeying Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you for your spirit within that gives us the freedom to stand against wrongdoing and tyranny and gives us the ability to stand in your righteousness and love. to bring peace to the disturbed and to disturb the peaceful. And we pray, Father God, that you will move in a mighty way to enrich your spirit within each of us, to equip us for the days that lie ahead and whatever that might bring to each of us. For Jesus' sake. 
Amen.